You're listening to episode 158 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And we are joined today by Flo. Hi. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And we will be talking to you in just a moment about the next book for the book club. But first, I should probably introduce what we have on the show today as the main event. So our colleague in the programming team, Rebecca DeWalt, is talking with Olivia Helliwell. Olivia is a translator who translates from Slovene to English. She translates literary fiction, children's fiction and non-fiction and was the British Centre for Literary Translations translator in residence earlier in the year. But firstly, shall we have a chat with Flo about what's coming up at the next NCW Book Club? Absolutely. Flo, what is the next book? Yeah, I'm really, really happy to reveal that our next book is a book of short stories, which we haven't actually read yet in the in the book club. And we've chosen Sudden Traveller by Sarah Hall, who, of course, is multi-award winning author of novels and this is her third really highly acclaimed short story collection she's famous for her short story writing they're just amazing stories and I thought for the summer time you know people hopefully be able to relax and get away maybe something that's in nice short chunks would go down really well. So Flo, can you remind us how people can get involved with the book club because you don't have to be based in Norwich to take part do you? Yeah, so there's two months over which time we'll be reading the book together. So still plenty of time to get your hands on a copy from your library or your bookshop or online. And over August and September, we will be releasing some blog posts with some questions that might be helpful to start thinking about the book and what you might want to discuss with other readers. Um, A writing exercise inspired by the book. And then as we get into sort of late September, we'll have some discussion sessions. One of those might hopefully be in person but there'll always definitely be an online discussion session so people can join you know if you're not in Norwich or you can't get into Norwich for whatever reason you'll still be able to take part and have a chat about the book with other readers and in the meantime over the whole course of the two-month reading window there's also our discord community where you can chat with lots of other readers and writers and I'll be posting occasional questions to see what you all think. Yep, there's a whole channel on the Discord just for the book club, so you can dive straight into discussing it. And if you want to join that Discord community, it's completely free, and you can find a link down in the show notes or over on the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Flo, is there anything else people need to know about this short story collection? One of the stories in the book has won the BBC National Short Story Competition, making Sarah Hall, I think, one of the... the first author to win it multiple times I believe Um, and it's a really lovely collection of stories it's kind of classic Sarah Hall really sensuous language she takes us to some pretty strange and dark places Um, but I I feel it's also a perfect summer read for me there are a few stories that are absolutely sun-drenched and there are others that are you know proper British summer full of rain and um, really just taking on her kind of recurrent themes of mortality, life, death, transformation. Sounds great. I always find with short stories, it's it's such a different experience to reading a, a whole novel. It's like you have to kind of put, you put your brain into a slightly different gear. Yeah, it is. And actually, I, I kind of, I don't know, returning to this this book, I've really enjoyed taking a bit more time with these stories. So you, that's the joy of 
short story collections, I suppose. I've read it once really quickly when it first came out and couldn't get enough of it and raced through it. And now kind of coming back to it, I'm taking a story a day and it's it's been a really fun way to read it. But it's also quite a nice, flexible way of reading. And if you're reading around other commitments, a short story is often a bit more manageable than a whole novel. Absolutely. Can't wait to jump in. Brilliant. Well, looking forward to that flow. And now let's hand over to Rebecca talking to Olivia Helliwell. Hello and welcome. My name is Rebecca DeVault and I'm the Emerging Translator Mentorships Program Manager at NCW. And today I've got the great pleasure of talking to Olivia Hallowell. We'll be talking about literary translation, more generally the craft of it as well, and some translations in particular. So without long-winded introductions, over to you, Olivia. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, Should we get started with how you became a translator of Slovene? Yeah, sure. So I think the... The easiest way to pinpoint it is just to say that I studied Spanish and Russian as an undergraduate at the University of Nottingham. I never really had a definite idea of what I wanted to do with those languages. I just really loved studying languages. Uh, But towards the end of my degree, it became clear that translation was the, the aspect of language learning that I was most interested in, and it was the thing that I was doing well at. And one of my Russian tutors at the time alerted me to this postgraduate diploma that existed at the time. And I think the best way to describe it is kind of like a bolt-on for Slavonic languages. So if you had one Slavonic language, you could apply for funding to learn another, either for professional or research purposes. And so in my final year of undergraduate study, I was applying for jobs and graduate schemes and I applied for this um, diploma for the funding Uh, and that was the thing that came through so it wasn't really like a grand master plan you know I was looking looking at where to go and what to do next and and I had this opportunity and I always loved learning languages so I was really excited at that opportunity and I could choose between Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian or Slovene and I googled them (laughs) And I discovered um, that Slovene had a grammatical dual and I got really interested in that and also it looked like a really beautiful country. It's incredibly shallow and superficial, really. It was like a very um, kind of cursory Google, but I decided to go for it. Um, And so then I had this amazing opportunity to spend a year learning Slovene one-on-one, doing about 15 hours a week um, with both um, a native speaker tutor who was in our department at the time and my um, Russian uh, translation lecturer as well who also spoke Slovene and and yeah like the progress that I made in that year was just really buoying like I, I, I loved studying Russian so much but I think I never had that many hours of, of language study in my degree because I did joint honours and also because I don't really feel like I learned how to study until quite late in my degree. I was kind of just excited by things, but I didn't always apply myself in the best way. I was always a little bit underconfident with my Russian. But then in contrast, having all of this time to dedicate to just one language and having one-on-one tutoring and then also the opportunity to go to Slovenia as part of that, it, I just... I. I progressed so much, so much quicker than, than I did with, with Russian. So, and I just, I fell in love with it. I, I really loved 
how accessible the language seemed to me, I suppose, and and how welcoming people were when I visited and how encouraging they were. Um, I, I found it a lot easier to to go out there to practice to to read up on you know on on the literature on on culture on history. It just seemed like a very welcoming place, and I I ended up sticking with it, and it ended up turning into something that. I never could have imagined at the time. That sounds like a love story almost of like finding finding the right language for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely easy to romanticize that kind of thing, <laughs> especially there's lots of tropes about like the grammatical jewel and how it's a romantic function of the language. Like you can you can express um, you know, sentiment intended for two people only without kind of needing to to say. So you can say I go the two of us go or all of us as a group go but there is a flip side of that which you can be really snide and exclude someone from group situation if you're in a group of three or more and you say to another person oh should the two of us go and get a drink that's a very clear indication that you don't want anybody else to come <laughs> so could be romantic could be throwing shade <laughs> that just reminds me in um german's got so german is one of my languages i work as a translator as well and i've, I've got german french and spanish but german is the main one um, and there's a way of like lots of things are like expressed in the passive tense and mm -hmm. that's a similar kind of way of saying like one has done this and that or like this has been done to somebody without kind of like really taking full responsibility for it amazing <laughs> So also like a way of excluding people who aren't meant by the by the one kind of thing. <laughs> so. But yeah, I kind of, yeah, I was just kind of wondering with the, yeah, so you basically were studying Slovene, you're kind of like immersing yourself in the language. I mean, maybe that's what adds to the sort of like um, kind of getting into into one language, maybe more than the sort of like maybe studying another language in a more academic level as well, like sort of different learner types and so on. Um, but you still also... Um, work in academia as well so how do you how do you combine that like in the sort of um if your Slovene experience is from like almost like learning by doing I suppose of kind of like being living in the country speaking with people is quite the opposite in some ways of doing academic study I suppose so how does that relate to each other I think it's just a clear indication of how how little I planned for this <laughs> like, I, I never I never ever expected that I could do a PhD that was it never really occurred to me and when I completed my Slovene diploma I, I got a job I was working for a company that was a current information service and my job was to to go through all the Slovene newspapers in the financial sections and to pick out relevant um, news items for a list of clients who had interests in certain sectors and then I would translate um, these articles and kind of write short abstracts with the key information and, and kind of create these new, these business news feeds. And so again, that wasn't that wasn't taking me in, in the academic direction. It was just that having this quite rare language combination um, had presented this opportunity for me. So that was that was quite a good first job to have. Like I, I got to continue building on on those language skills, but financial news isn't really what sets my soul on fire I have to say so <laughs> after after a year of doing that job and and whilst I did that job actually 
I, I was working remotely with that, so it also enabled me to move to Ljubljana. And I spent I spent four four or so months I think living in Ljubljana one summer and doing this job remotely, but I I kind of was starting to feel like there was still some more studying in me and I, I still had plenty of questions and I still felt I think quite connected to the community of people that I knew in Nottingham and so never fully left that group behind. I had a couple of friends who had stayed on and were doing further study. Um, I was still in touch with with some of the staff in the department who who were great and who I've always you know had just like a really nice relationship with. So I think it was a case of other people around me showing me this model um, which I hadn't got from perhaps my immediate friends or family. I didn't really know how any of this stuff worked, but there were a few people who I really looked up to and that was drawing me back. Um, so yeah, I, I applied for um, a master's in translation studies at Nottingham. I, I, specific, I chose Nottingham again, mainly because of those contacts and that community of people, but but also because it was the only place where I could study Slovene as part of my translation master's because at the time there wasn't another university in the UK where you could do that. I know that UCL CIS has evening courses, but at the time they weren't part of you know any modules or anything. So that made that decision. And then I really, really loved um, that year of... Um, translation studies MA I I learned all about translation theory and just loved that stuff yeah it just it led into me thinking okay maybe now I would like to do a PhD and I guess what all of this was doing it was always buying me more time to continue learning Slovene to continue learning about the sociocultural background about the literature um and so, yeah, it was just building layer upon layer of, of interest in this subject that I never would have imagined, you know, would have been accessible to me. So you see translation studies, but um, were you because you were working in um, like in a job that included translating? But obviously, when we when we talk about your book translation later, we talk about literary translation. So when you went back to university, were you thinking, oh, I might want to get into literary translation and the sort of like the cultural aspect but the cultural literary aspect is what I'm interested in or were you just generally thinking oh I'd like to work with Slovene and with the language and I want to be a translator so like you know do you like want to be a literary translator do you want to be a translator do you just want to engage with the act of translation I suppose that's a good question I don't think I ever had a fixed idea that I wanted to be a literary translator because I never would have assumed that that was something that was an actual job you know for me that I didn't ever think that I was going to be able to make a living doing that particularly from Slovene. I think prior to starting my PhD I had been to a couple of translation events I was interested I think it was was it Translate at City I went and applied to do that it was a day I think it was a day of workshops at the time and I did that with Spanish I did an amazing um, couple of sessions with Nick Caster and and so I, I was definitely curious, I think is the right word. Mm. But I, I never I never had any set ambitions or ideas because I probably didn't know what what being a literary translator was. But also thinking about it in the final project that I chose um for my Slovene diploma, I picked I picked a literary text 
which is absolutely preposterous and ridiculous and why I thought I could translate an excerpt of Boris Pachor after a year of learning Slovene. <laughs> I shall never know. But thankfully, nobody ever has to see that. <laughs> Sometimes it's blissful ignorance as well of like not really knowing what the difficulties are in a text and just having a go. <laughs> exactly. I think that shows, you know, how how naive I was about the whole idea. It was just, for me, I think it was still a way of exploring language and learning language. Um, and, you know, all my ideas about the craft of literary translation um, came from spending time with other translators, really. So part of what you've been doing recently is the BCLT Translator in Residence Scheme, um, which was obviously moved to being online and it was the pandemic year and all those kind of things. But you obviously have your like hands in different pots in terms of <laughs> translating and working and like promoting Slovene literature. As part of your residency, you organized a seminar and I've written down the title because it sounds a bit difficult, but we can probably price this apart a bit because it's, it's called Supply Driven Translation and Less Translated Languages. So I was wondering whether, first of all, you can maybe explain what that means and how that relates to your research. I feel like there's an overlap in terms of like all these, like the sort of um, what you're saying about like how you how you found Slovene as your language to work with, but then actually sort of discovering that maybe there's no kind of like well-trodden path between Slovene and English in translation yet, because it's not like, say, German and English, for example, or in English and German, where there's like a constant back and forth from the book fest and all those kind of things. So um, so I feel like in my brain anyway, it seems to connect the way you like, you fell in love with the language and then also realized that maybe it's not a sort of easy path of getting Slovene literature and culture into English. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. I, I don't think there is a well-trodden path. And for me, the the academic work and the translation work are completely intertwined because without those academic positions, without PhD funding, without this postdoc position that I have at the moment, I wouldn't have that kind of financial safety net to translate or to, to give translation thought or to give it space in my life. So I can't really separate the two. It's only because I kind of found myself pursuing this academic career that I think I was able to stick with Slovene in the way that I did. I do often think what would have happened if I'd have stayed in Ljubljana and hadn't have come back to do that master's. I imagine I would have come at translation down a different path. I, I think in some ways... I always would have been inclined to do this. But yeah, going back to the residency and the talk that I gave, what I wanted to do was to kind of give an idea of how things work when you translate from a literature that isn't published that often in English translation. Um, and as part of our residency, we had um, so William Gregory and I and Cecilia Rossi at UEA, we scheduled these fortnightly conversations as a way of giving structure to the residency now that it was online because, you know, we weren't going to be sitting in Norwich talking about translation, inspiring one another. Um, we, needed, we needed to do something that would remind each other of what we were doing and, and kind of reinforcing that space. Um, and I was I found that a lot of the time when we had conversations about translation, about what we did, kind of saying, what is a literary translator? What do we translate? Um, 
a lot of my answers had caveats and I would listen to other answers and other points of view and say, but oh, actually, well, it doesn't really work like this for Slovene. And and so it was from from that that um, kind of spurred this idea for um, wanting to make my, my research seminar about those questions. But that's that's always um, that idea of kind of how translation happens from a so-called small language like Slovene. You know, there are two billion two million speakers of Slovene, so not that many really. Um, this question of how it happens and why it happens has been central to my work. Um, it was central to my PhD, and it's something that I think I'll be forever curious about. Um, yeah, the, the the talk the talk was about that, and and the whole supply driven translation thing is a term that's that's kind of relatively recent. There have been similar concepts used in in translation studies, but it's a way of describing um, translations that occur not as a result of a demand from a target publishing culture, but because there is a drive to supply them on the source culture side. And it, it works particularly well with the case of Slovene literature because there's a whole network of institutions, governmental, non-governmental, individuals, authors, translators, people all working quite creatively, finding strategies to make sure that Slovene literature is translated. Um, I, I once interviewed somebody who worked for one of these cultural institutes and, and their response was, if we don't take care of it, nobody else will. And that really encapsulates that sense that, you know, if Slovenia doesn't work to have its own literature translated into other languages, then it's not going to be shared. So that that is what the supply-driven thing is about. And I think it's it's connected to less translated languages, which are often um, this term comes from another another volume by an academic, um, Albert Branchadel, and I can't remember the quote exactly off the top of my head, but it's something like less translated languages are those which are less often the source of translations on the global linguistic market or the market of linguistic goods. That's that's the general idea, and the reason that this term. I think works quite well is because it can apply to lots of different languages because in actual fact when you look at translations into English there are only a handful of languages that we could could say are frequently translated into English so but at the same time that kind of general applicability of the term is a downfall because it's not that specific and within that umbrella of less translated languages there are so many different power dynamics that can influence how and why or why not um, like certain literatures are or aren't translated. Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really fascinating term. I hadn't come across it before, but also because my languages are the most translated languages, probably. Um, but because I think we tend to maybe categorize languages into like sort of like Western European languages, which like if you live in Western Europe are generally the most translated ones. But then you also like, well, it's a Central European language. So it's like then we have like the opposite term of like minor languages or minority languages. But it's not a minority language either because it's like because the, the term particularly then refers to what gets translated rather than how many people speak this language. I mean, we have 
language is spoken by millions and millions of people um and yet like the publishing industry in the uk for example in the us is just not particularly interested in those languages even though there's lots of speakers so i think it's yeah it's a fascinating time to kind of think of to do also because i guess this is what um i was trying to think about like how it um it draws attention not just to the work of translators but to kind of the bigger publishing industry that we're embedded in so it's like it's almost doesn't doesn't matter how many speakers there are of a language or how many translators like community translators there might be but actually it's a sort of like what gets translated what gets published is not just determined by this one translator picking out a great book and then that book because it's so great by its very nature becomes published <laughs> exactly but it's actually, way more complex than that yeah yeah and i think a lot of the time labels are really inadequate they you know the reality is far more complex and nuanced than a label can convey but i think that that phrase that you used just then like drawing attention to that's that's exactly right and that's what i feel is interesting and important about this the idea of supply driven translation is that it draws attention to the fact that that there is all this labor and 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 money and time and energy being invested in in helping Slovene translations mm. or translations of Slovene literature happen, and and that's something that's that's really often overlooked, mm. as is the case with with so so many other languages, the majority of other languages. And also the the sort of difficulty, I suppose, of um, you know, advising somebody who maybe wants to get going in translation and like how they should approach it, and then actually realizing that it so depends on the language pair that you work with, how you would go about it, like whether you made contacts with a publisher, with an editor in the source language and the target language, whether you network with cultural institutions, like whether you ask other translators, like all those kind of things are just sort of, because um, you recently organized a, um, a seminar, one, no, was it a two day conference? Um, and I remember there was a great talk um, a session on these different aspects with um, Shamrita. Shamrita uh, Ganguly, Anton Her and Savad Hussain. Yeah, they did a great panel on the translator as advocate and agent. And they were talking about all the different roles that they had to take on as translators in order to make translations from their respective source languages happen. So we just talking about India, um, Anton was talking about Korea, and so what was talking about the Arabic language context. And they were so, so different. And I think it was really enlightening for everybody who came along to that as well, to feel like, this is completely different from what my sort of reality or from your reality or everybody's reality. Like we kind of get together as like translators working into English, but really like the sort of like the, the background, the bulk of the work that happens before you even get to sit down to translate something. Um, I feel like it's, it's still so hidden in, in lots of conversations as well, because it kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of the idea of like, how, what do you, how do you work with the text? But really like, how does this project even get off the ground? Annex of it are, so, are such a big part of of the role, and I think I don't know. Maybe it's helpful for me to just say this is how it works for me as a Slovene to English translator. But I often think a lot about where I am and and whether my location is optimum for the job that I'm trying to do. And I and I kind of think that in some ways it is because being involved with events in the translation community in the UK especially when amazing opportunities like the BCLT residency come about. Those things are, are key to me being able to continue translating books. I think that it is really important that you are in 
an environment where you're hoping to promote a certain um, literature, right? I, I kind of am here as as somebody with an understanding of what books may work um, for a, for a UK audience. I understand, you know, what would work well in terms of events, what topics of discussion, like how best might be, how I might best introduce an author that speaks about a particular topic, that kind of thing. I'm kind of well placed to do that. At the same time, a lot of talks about how to get into translation are, are focused on the translator's relationship with the UK publishing market, when in actual fact, for me, it's, it's my relationship with the Slovene publishing market has been the most influential in terms of me acquiring work. And without those relationships um, with um, partners in Slovenia, I wouldn't I wouldn't receive any work because well, first of all, I've never received any interest really from from UK publishers wanting to know what's what's hot in Slovene fiction yet. I mean, I am waiting to be surprised, but um, I think even if I were to be able to spend all of my time doing sample translations, unpaid, pitching speculatively to publishers, there's only ever going to be a very, very limited amount of work that would come my way through that means. and. For me personally, I'm, I'm not able to spend time preparing sample translations for free because I need to pay my rent and it's academic work that has paid my rent and that takes quite a lot of time. So that takes away the translation time. So that kind of double bind. So I'm not sure how true it is for other translators of kind of less translated languages um, or however we might describe them. But But for me... I think navigating the dynamics of the source culture, the publishing context has been key. It's a challenge. It changes a lot. And you kind of have to be in two places at once almost. But um, that certainly had a bearing on, on what I translate. Why don't we talk about one of your translation projects, maybe that might illustrate how, how this process works then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we, we were planning and talking about uh, Goran Voin, is it Voinovich? Is that how you pronounce it? Well, helpfully, it's got a pronunciation guide at the start of the book, which was, I thought was amazing. So the book, um, the book I've got is The Fig Tree. Um, and I thought, I mean, there's lots of points in it as well, but maybe just to sort of, just to illustrate what you were just saying about the sort of connection with the source language as well, whether we want to talk about a bit how this project came about and then and then we can maybe get into it and kind of talk about some of the translation choices, which is like what all the translation geeks are waiting for, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I bought a copy of Figa, as it is known in Slovene, in I think it was probably summer of 2016 i was in ljubljana for the seminar of slovene language literature and culture which is an amazing fortnight of um language classes lectures different kind of activities organized um, and hosted by the university of ljubljana and i bought figa i think from the university bookshop it won lunch break and immediately started reading it and got really hooked um and then at some point down the line I had a conversation with um the international cooperation and rights manager at a Slovene publisher who published Figa 
and who has um, an arrangement with um, East Rust Books, a publisher based in London, where they discuss potential titles and it's kind of called a, a bilateral partnership. And the Slovene publisher works to apply for funding from Creative Europe, so EU funding, puts forward titles for translation, and then they are published in cooperation with the UK publisher. So I had had a conversation with them about how much I loved Bonovich's new novel. It was Iskoran's third novel. And I think I'd sort of maybe even half jokingly said, if this book is ever translated, please think of me kind of thing. Um, because when I'd read it in Slovene, I, you know, I was scribbling all kinds of notes in the margins. I was thinking, oh, how would I say that? Would I say this? Or does it? Things were just coming to me in English all the time. And, and the excitement of, of that challenge, thinking how on earth would one go about translating a book like this? Um, yeah, it was, it was really coming to life. And then there was one evening I was sat outside a pizza place in Cardiff, pretty freezing cold, but it was a nice, nice evening. I was eating pizza and doing that thing I shouldn't have been doing, which was checking my emails like late into the evening. And I got this email saying that um, the fig tree was going to be translated. These were the dates. These were the terms. Would I be interested? Cue lots of kind of excited um, chatter and dancing around. And it, the timing looked like it was going to work out really well. I was to, coming towards the end of my PhD. Um, and so I was going to basically have a project lined up for when I finished, which for me was huge because I'd spent a lot of time stressing about what was going to happen after my PhD. The academic job market is not great at the moment. And this just seemed like a really good way to be able to hit the ground running, do something that I love doing, whilst also buying me some time to apply for academic jobs once that was completed. Yeah, it was it was the case that the book was put to me, the project was offered but I suppose, unlike previous projects, I had had the opportunity to already um, kind of subtly put my name forward and express a lot of interest in this particular novel. So, so it was meant to be. <laughs> I guess so. But it's funny because I think there's something very specific about this novel of Goran's that made me feel like I wanted to do it because... With his first novel in particular, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have taken that on. And the fig tree is quite different in style to Goran's previous two novels. And I think there's something in particular about the style of this book that enabled me to to hear it. That, that made me think that yeah, I could, I could do a good job of this. But it's not the first book translation you did because I'm I'm just trying to think with, because you said the timing was great for it in terms of like the initial planning of it. How do you assess how long it would take you to translate a book? Do you just simply go by the word count? Do you kind of do an estimate of how many words you do per day? How much time you've got? That's such a good question. I don't really have an answer, I'm afraid. It's something I still really struggle with. Um, but yeah, I the only way I can give an estimate is is by word count and thinking about 
previous totals. But when you don't have a lot of experience, you don't you don't really have a good idea of, of what you can do in a day. And, and it's always so dependent on the text or and the, the section of the book or lots of different things. So it is really it is really hard to gauge. But I do actually I keep quite a close record of how much I translate. One of the things that I do thinking about my process is I keep a spreadsheet and I enter, you know, the the kind of the starting word count and then the word count that I end on at the day. And then that spreadsheet does the calculations for me and it just tells me how many percent I am through the book. And that really helps me get an idea of, of how quickly I'm able to work and how much needs to be done. And I think that comes out of necessity, really, because when you are juggling other projects, you can't always just be focused on one project all the time. So it's just a way of managing that anxiety about having so much to do. <laughs> I've heard that from other people as well. It's sort of like a to-do list of like, you know, seeing at the end of the day that you have actually done some work. <laughs> yeah. Like ticking that off. <laughs> let's, let's get to the text <laughs> and actually like, ask some questions about the text. Um, I really enjoyed the book and I've, much like you, I'm really kind of like drawn to it. I think partly because... It's got it's a sort of family history um through the lens of Yadran who's going through a difficult relationship with his wife Anya or partner Anya. Um and he's kind of looking at his life through the lens of the his parents' generation and the um his grandparents' generation. And because you've got these like three generations, well four if you count Yadran's got a child as well, um all the first chapters start with different characters. Actually, they start with the great grandmother as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Which that's is a bit of a like, curveball, isn't it? It, yeah. it kind of it opens the novel, and then that particular thread doesn't really take you anywhere. She yeah. pops up, I think, right at the end. Yeah, and it sets. I think it sets the kind of the seed of an idea about running away, about fear, about. Yeah having to change your country and your persona and all that kind of thing but yeah in concrete terms you're right that isn't really um picked up on and it's also the way it's structured at the start it's like you kind of you you start the first chapter and you don't know who the main character is and then it's the grandfather and then the next chapter it like the, it switches between different generations at the start until it kind of settles on, on a sort of main character and it felt like reading a short story collection almost because not, I think that's also why I wanted to keep reading it because every every chapter started in a diff, slightly different tone and slightly different style it's like oh what's the next story gonna be what's the next puzzle piece that's adding to this great story as well um puzzle piece is a good word and I also think I thought of it as, as a patchwork there were so many different pieces that were layered together and they don't always fit perfectly and I don't think it's a it's not the kind of novel where everything is sewn up at the end there are a lot of questions but I really loved that about it I just think it was a very sort of quietly questioning novel Mm. and the characters for me were so strong that I think that's partly why I was so keen to translate it because yes, there's so much in the text that is difficult or that potentially causes, you know, a lot of kind of questions in terms of translation. But in spite of all that, there are these six central characters who 
you really build up a relationship with and who are dealing with issues that are not language specific, they're not nationality specific. It's really relatable in, in spite of the very historic backdrop that's going on in their lives. I never heard anybody say that they read it like a collection of stories. <laughs> it's true that that's what it is. And that's what a family history is as well, right? It's like a collection of these stories that get passed down. Yeah, it's true. And it's kind of like, it's often reporter speech as well, isn't it? Because you tell a story that's told by your grandfather or whatever, and then you talk, you might use the sort of like narrative present tense to tell the story and that kind of gets a bit more convoluted and ends up maybe being not quite true anymore. <laughs> I'm also aware that like not all the listeners might have necessarily read the book, so it's enough of like to give a teaser of it. We also have um, Goran Voinovich is doing a Meet the World event, um, which would have probably aired by the time... Um, this podcast is coming out but if people want to listen to it it's going to be in the ncw youtube channel as well but in terms of the sort of details of it so like just enough of a teaser so people like will definitely want to pick up the book as well but we were just seeing like the different stories as well and a different um independent of languages yet and one of the things that really struck me is obviously the sort of like linguistic context in which the the novel happens which is the context of former former yugoslavia of course um and you said at the start that when you were choosing slovene you also had the option of doing serbo croat or bosnian now now um especially as those languages are taught at universities they tend to be referred to together as bcs bosnian croatian serbian but they all are also recognized as individual languages so in terms of that's a very good explanation because my ignorance of Yugoslavian languages is becoming apparent here. Because one of my first questions was how mutually intelligible are they? And then how did you, and then, because you, you choose to render, you choose to translate most of it into English, but there are a couple of bits of Bosnian left in Bosnian in the text. Um, so one is like, how, how mutually intelligible are they for, um, for speakers of one of the other living in the region, how easily understandable are they for somebody who might be a Slovene slow learner um, just from listening to them? And then how? what's the decision-making in terms of rendering them into English where it's probably not, it's not a school language, so you can't really expect the reader to understand a bit of foreign, foreign language in the English text? These are three really big, difficult <laughs> questions, right? <laughs> Um, On the question of mutual intelligibility, I find this fascinating because I think I've been asked this every single time I've spoken about the fig tree and and people are so curious to understand that that linguistic context, how it worked. It's it's kind of unfamiliar for us as UK residents in spite of the fact that we are also a multilingual nation. But the dominance of English is to the extent that people find it impossible to think how people within the same family that's like a very kind of Anglo-centric view. And of course, the UK is way more multilingual than it is ever kind of portrayed to be. I think the easiest way to answer it in the context of the fig tree is just to think about the generations. Um, for the two generations, for the parents, Vesna and Safet, and for the grandparents, Alexander and Jana, so they they use Slovene and Bosnian Serbian Croatian uh, interchangeably. Um, they can they have they have grown up in a country where um, 
both both or all of those languages are official languages. Um, Slovene is seen as distinct from Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian. It has different grammatical features and and some of the vocab is is different. Like often, if for instance, I I have a good friend who is a lecturer in um, Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian. And we will often share snippets of things and she'll say, oh, what's the Slovene word for that? And I'll tell her and she was like, what is that? Where does that come from? That kind of thing. So there are there are distinct differences. But because of the presence of those languages in in society, people people of um, Yadran's parents' generation used used both. What was the second part of your question? And that is a very simplistic answer, by the way. Like it, talking about the um, the linguistic politics of of Yugoslavia is is a big topic. Which is the which is the challenge of translating a fiction book as well, isn't it? Because if you were translating or writing a textbook where you're describing all of this, you could spend X amount of pages doing this. But obviously, you're exactly within the limits of the novel of like making this linguistic context clear to an English language reader without kind of without having the same means of like you know i mean one option i suppose is that sometimes translators do is like translating different dialects different accents into a novel but then that really obviously moves it to the uk or the us depending which dialects and accents used um i never really entertained that i think that's just so it can be so problematic to try and to try and create an equivalent and and the fig tree is so excuse the pun like deeply rooted in its location it would have been impossible to create another dialect and also it feels really falsely performative like for you know i only have my english which as somebody else who read the translation pointed out occasionally like bits of northern have slipped in <laughs> subconsciously which at first I was mortified by it, but then afterwards I was like, well, of course that's going to happen. I know a couple of Scottish translators who always pepper their translations. Well, not always, but always try to pepper their translations with a, like a straight out with or something just to <laughs> like, make their presence felt. I think that's a good thing. It's like cause we all have our own Englishes as well. Yeah. So I never, I never really entertained the idea of trying to create some kind of equivalent because it's such a, it's such a specific dynamic it would have been impossible the other approach I thought about um was one that I actually discussed when I went to a translation surgery um with the translator from French Roz Schwartz and before there was there was an international translation day event I think and and again it was it was a while ago now it was before I'd started my translation of the fig tree but I knew that I was going to be translating it and so we were asked to take a particular problem with us to this surgery and then we could discuss it in the room with Roz and with a group of other translators um, and and it was really really helpful because people had different takes on it different suggestions and one of those was that I could um, make I could put all of the father's language so Safet his his language is Bosnian, and I, I occasionally name it as Bosnian because we know that he is from Bosnia. But in actual fact, in the fig tree in Slovene, this language is referred to as Nashki, which 
I explain in, in the foreword is, is a way of saying kind of our language. And it's this collective term, basically for Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian that was spoken in Yugoslavia. Um, so I could have kept the Nashki in, I could have translated it into English, but kept it in italics to, to visually differentiate and mark the points where he was um, using his language, using Nashki when conversing with Slovene characters. But this was complicated um, by the fact that italics have a very specific role in the fig tree. I don't know how much you picked up on this, but sometimes the dialogue is in italics and sometimes it's in speech marks. Until you get quite a way through the novel that you consciously start to, I think, realise this and see what it's doing. Um, and without wishing to to give too many spoilers, it's it's a way of differentiating between recollected speech and then active speech in the present. So the italics have a really important function. And if I was if I was putting Safet's speech in italics, it would have um, it would have kind of broken this code. That wasn't an option either. I had to I had to come up with something that would still signal to the reader that occasionally Safet switches language he has phrases he has uh, cultural references that he expresses in bosnian and i felt that the, the best way to do that without as you said having to give any explanation or or break the kind of the integrity of the literary text was to to leave in lines phrases that weren't too central to a reader's understanding of that particular uh, passage. So the line of a song, if it's obvious that he was singing, for instance, there's a line where he's singing in the shower in the bathroom, I've left that lyric in. Um, and phrases like, hello, goodbye, when a character is perhaps entering a cafe in a scene, that is, I think, from context, you can gather that that is what is going on. So... It was it was a difficult balance because it's hard for me to fully comprehend how much um, source language left in is too much because of course I understand it. It's been really interesting uh, listening to um, other people's feedback of the book who who don't know anything about the, the linguistic or the historical um, context of the fig tree. It's been really fascinating to see how they've interpreted it. I think some people. Some people are open to it and, and deal with it and absorb it. And, and some people, if they're really interested in the details, maybe find it a bit distracting and, and they want to know more. It's different types of readers and different types of reading experiences. Yeah. So, Of course. There's also, there's a great bit where um, Alexander and Jana, when, um, so they're the grandparents, and when um, Jana's already starting to lose her memory, and they have a conversation and that's all, is that in Bosnian as well? Because that's all left in the original language, their conversation. And the Yadran, the grandson, listens into the conversation and it's not until the end of the conversation um, that he listened into that he realised they'd started using a different language with each other. And that's why, so for me, whenever, without knowing whether all the all the source languages bits were left in Bosnian or um, anything that wasn't Slovenian, I... I, to me, that highlights that there's something critical is happening here that you have to like the, you're alerted to as the reader. So obviously, something's going on with the language they use with each other. 
um, them has changed or is different to the way they were communicating before. So I thought that was like, as a sort of like linguistic device, I was like, I wonder if that's the, if the source text is doing the same clever thing because it's really clever because it's really obvious in the translation. Yeah, I I should have um, flagged up this passage to to pick out more. I was thinking you, at first that you were referring to another section because there's another slightly later example of that when Yana has lost her memory even more and she she asks Alexander to take her home or says that she wants to go home, but she is at home. And Alexander says to her, in in um vcs even even now it's hard for me to name that language because the context has changed and the way these languages are referred to has changed but he he says to her i'll I'll take you home tomorrow but he says that in um in vcs and and it, it says in the text that there was no use him using the language that they had spoken together for the past however many years and that was such a poignant moment um even though the text kind of already explains why he chose to use that different language in that context i felt like i still wanted to retain the impact of that phrase and so it's one of the rare instances where i actually left that original um source language in that line and then it, and it's footnoted because it, it really like it kind of shatters through it's so breaking it's the reason that he chooses that language is it's, it's so disconnected because the woman that he sees is no really is not really his wife anymore it really embodies that alienation that has occurred that kind of yeah growing apart the opposite question i was going to ask is about what it so i've already warned you about this question but because you're talking about the context being so different to like basically what a sort of Average English reader, I'm putting air quotation marks here that nobody can see, um, is putting in. And there's a whole thing about the mythical English reader also on the NTW YouTube channel that I think a lot of people have watched and are interested in. But there's often the question in translation of how much of a source culture do you translate or to use the technical domesticate or foreignize in the in the target language? So for example, and that's why I'm saying the what's a conundrum, because I I'm, I'm highlighted two bits about it. One of it is about Yadron um wanting to talk to his son about dream castles and like imagining this beautiful dream world of castles made up of what's and obviously what's being a very uk snack and the other one is when i think maya um vesna who's the mother of yadran's sister i think is reading boda magazine which is a magazine you can get here as well we talked about this earlier about pattern making and um, so i was like as a keen sewist um, i picked up on the boda magazine straight away but it's a magazine it's a german language pattern making magazine that is really popular in central europe that's popular in russia as well and, and lots of countries maybe not so much here but um but you left that title for example in like the original and, and didn't have a read anything that's like hello magazine or something so it's these two yeah. extremes in a way of like how much should you adapt it to the sort of english language context and the associated culture that you um, re- referencing and how much yeah should you leave so funny i mean i don't think i yet have an established consensus in my own mind i think it's so dependent on specific instances and and sometimes it's not even as conscious as I would like it to be like when you fragged up the what's it's thing 
I'm, I'm not joking when I say this triggered triggered a spiral of like self doubt and despair. And like, I can't believe I left the WhatsApps in. Did I mean to leave? Did I mean to leave the WhatsApps in? Yes, I did. And I had to go back and I had to reconvince myself of my reasons for choosing the WhatsApp. <laughs> as background in the fig tree, as you say, this scene where um, Yadran is is coming up with a way of trying to explain the death of his grandfather to his son, Marco. And so he's coming up with this story about how how Alexander has gone off to this magical land to join Grandma Yana. And on this, on this land, um, there are houses that are made of smoky. <laughs> and smoky are the best crisp ever, but they are basically what's-its for their peanut flavour. I think you get them in Germany. They're called flips in Germany. They look yeah. like little peanuts. Oh, they're yeah. amazing. <laughs> they're not unique to Slovenia, but the, Slovenia is where I discovered Smoky. Probably one of the main reasons why I carried on learning Slovene, to be honest. They're kind of, they're, they're beloved amongst my, um, one, one of my particular friendship groups, shall we say. But obviously, Smoky aren't known here. It's interesting you say flips because that's another kind of word that to me suggests that type of crisp. But I never know whether that's just because of my familiarity with these different contexts and continental crisp knowledge. There, there should be a spreadsheet somewhere with all the continental crisps and like their equivalences and where you can get them. I know. Oh, that would be <laughs> such a good resource. What what it needed to do in the text was, was show that it was a type of crisp, a brand of crisp even being referenced it's it's quite quick it's snappy so any attempt to explain some kind of like peanut flavored puffed snack would obviously have been way too wordy and wouldn't have worked smoky i I could have left smoky in and but i think that was probably one of those instances where i thought live nobody else knows what smoky are in the UK, you're getting too carried away with your love of smoky. This needs to change. And I probably put what's it without thinking too much and then went back and and decided that because it had that snappy title in the same way, that it performed a similar function and therefore replicated what the original source text was doing. But yeah, you certainly made me um, rethink that one. I didn't mean to question it. That was not there because <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it in there because I was also picturing the castle and the made of Watsits. And I also feel like it's the reference that a child would, would get, right? It's he's talking to a child, so it's kind of like you want to... Watsits is a really nice, playful word as well. Mm-hmm. It does have a good ring to it. But something that, you, that that point did raise and that made me think about my own English is that it's very British and another of my friends who's read The Fig Tree mentioned that my translation is very British English and and of course it is because that's the English that I have translated into and the book has also been edited by a UK-based publisher but maybe but maybe that's something I need to reflect on more in the future depending on on who I'm translating for. Another thing you did with the translation was that you uh, solicited the help of a couple of other translations in some of the paragraphs so this is to kind of um, I guess it's an overall question of like, how did this come about? So you worked on the BCLT summer school. So it's a, a way of asking about how does the summer school work? How did that come about? How did a group of translators work on on the on some paragraphs of the text? Because we always know 
anybody who's been to the summer school will know that it takes quite a while to get through even a short text because you have a group of people working on it as well. Um, and how did that finally even made, make it into the book? Because you could have decided to just use that as an exercise and not use it in the book at all. I wouldn't I wouldn't have done that. I was so thrilled with how that week turned out. Um, that there's no, like I became quite attached to the work that we'd done and I suppose in some ways that could have been dangerous, but actually I had a lot of time, a lot of time passed between us working on those excerpts as a group and then me putting my final translation together. And even after all those months had passed, I was still convinced that that they had done such a good job and that together we had gone through so many stages of refinement that I just felt like it really captured exactly what I was trying to do. Um, to kind of rewind a little bit, yeah, I was invited uh, by the BCLT to teach a Slovene to English workshop at their summer school, which I was so excited by because, you know, I had never personally had the opportunity to go to such a workshop. And there's a part of me that still felt that I should be participating in it, not leading it. But of course, you can't turn an opportunity like that down. And so I really put a lot of thought into what we were going to work on how would I structure that what would we do and because of the source of the funding for this workshop which was part of um, one of Cecilia Rossi's um, research projects that was to do with looking at the role of literary translation workshops in as a form of dialogue in, in bridging um, communities uh, where there'd been past conflict um, there was some kind of um, there was a specific angle that she was interested in as well. Once she'd invited me, we had a conversation about the text that we could use and whether or not I could recommend an author. And I think that was at the time when I knew that I was going to be translating the fig tree, but hadn't started. And so I said, well, actually, as it happens, I think I might have the perfect text. I told her about the fig tree, about how it was about a family across generations um, and what in the background there was the breakup of Yugoslavia and it was kind of how this kind of big political rupture affects people in these very kind of personal, quiet, intimate ways. It, it's The book is not about the breakup of Yugoslavia. It's not about the war but it also is, but it's about how that impacted people in their everyday lives and their relationships. So she thought it sounded like a great text that kind of resonated with what she was working on. And so she invited Goran, he was really keen, and, and plans came together. I think what was really special about that workshop is that because of the way that it was funded and the way that we've been able to plan it, it meant that we were able to advertise the workshop as not just a Slovene to English translation workshop, but we knew that we were inviting Goran, that we were working with that text. And so everyone that applied to be in my summer school workshop had this connection with the fig tree or with Figa. They knew the book in Slovene for the most part. Not everybody did, but most people had come already as fans of Goran's writing. So it was not just about being able to come and take part in a BCLT summer school. It was about being able to spend time with an author that they really admired. And I think that made 
that made it a really special group because there was a shared endeavour there um, already established before we'd started working together as translators. And what was interesting was that a lot of those translators were native speakers of Slovene and already worked as translators in, in other fields. They're already very accomplished linguists and translators, but they were trying their hand at literature perhaps for the first time, and especially translating into English. So that, that gave like a particularly interesting dynamic and things for me to think about as a workshop leader. But it meant that we were able to have lots of really good in-depth discussion about um, what the source text was doing. They were able to draw on their own experiences of, of, of growing up, memories of, of the time period that was covered in the book, that kind of thing. There was, there was so much that their experiences brought to our reading and our group understanding of the text that I just thought they did such an incredible job. And, and for me, it really kind of set the tone of the translation. We did these two passages together before I had done the bulk of the work. I hadn't finished the first draft of the fig tree when we, when we did that workshop together. So it was the most incredible um, preparation that you could ask for as a translator to basically have a panel of seven other, seven other people who know the source text really well, who all bring their own questions, ideas. It gave me so much to think about. And, and actually later down the line, when I was, when I was kind of finishing the translation, as a group, we have stayed in touch and I, I wrote to some of the members of the group. There was a couple. If there were a couple of points where I still wasn't quite sure that I'd really hit it, um, I they they read some sections for me and they were amazing. It just kind of it built this this community that um, had a shared love of this book, and you you just don't get a resource like that coming your way every day. So for me, I learned so much because. This is a big project for me. I, I still think of myself as very much um, someone who's early on in their translation career and experiences. And the book felt like a big responsibility. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of stories that aren't my stories in some ways. And it was it was big, both emotionally and linguistically. So. I'm I'm certain that having that group um, at the start of the process made the whole book, the whole translation much better. It's really questioning the relationship between mentor and mentee, isn't there? Of like who is learning from who in this process. It's a real like two-way thing as well. Um, and how like, yeah, I mean, as you were saying at the start as well, about sort of where, where you've come from with translation as well, how like there's so many life experiences that translators bring to translating a text they're like there's no kind of clear and maybe that's what makes it so exciting talking to translators that there's no clear one cut path into translation and everybody kind of brings their own experience to it um, as a sort of final concluding question I was wondering whether because you'll be teaching at the BCLT summer school again this year um, and I was just thinking about whether you'd maybe have some tips for emerging translators and particularly for those working in less translated languages because um, you also run a group of translators that started meeting up 
that all work in less translated languages so maybe maybe you can conclude with those of like how would you encourage emerging translators to kind of get into those less translated languages and what's the plan for the summer school and for the translators group yeah so the, the group is still very much kind of something that's forming aside from some initial kind of messages that I put out last year I think it was when I was doing my residency where I kind of put a few messages on the emerging translators um forum asking if anybody felt they would benefit from speaking to other people who perhaps felt that the, the advice that was often on offer didn't maybe match or or speak to their their experiences as translators of less translated languages and I got a huge response um and that was amazing and then we got together and there's kind of been a group of around 12 of us consistently I would say who have responded and had input into talking about what such a group could do and what it could be um, and we've been meeting and I'm quite excited to see where it'll go like we're, we're still not sure what it is and what it can do and I think that's quite an important question um, because there are some things that unite our experiences but also each and everyone is so different that you, it is complicated to think about realistically what a network could do for, and I'm doing air quotes here, less translated languages, when actually we're talking about so many translators here. Um, and, and how can that be really useful and functional? How can it, it can't be fit for, it can't fit every single person's experience. A group can never do that. So it's thinking about what form it might take and whether or not we maybe just stay as a small group of people who have kept on meeting and just kind of enjoying the community and the discussion without necessarily needing to announce ourselves as as a certain thing but we'll see um I'm really enjoying just kind of chatting with those people and seeing where it goes I'm really excited to be teaching at the summer school again It'll be online, so it'll be very different. Um, first time that I, for the first time that I taught there, but um, I think it's just an amazing chance to to share, I suppose, um, some of my own insights into process, but particularly on in this context into the practicalities. So I can talk about the ways that um I have navigated certain hurdles. I definitely don't have concrete answers but um I'm kind of you know I've I've translated three books now I have another children's book on the way I've learned from those experiences and I learn each more each time so if I can share insights into those then I'm really happy to I find the the advice thing a really tough question you know because half the time I still feel like you know, that I'm an emerging translator. And I understand now that having had the opportunity to do the BCLT residency, you know, I've been teaching at the BCLT. I'm on my fourth book. I imagine to people starting out that might look like I have made it, that I am a literary translator. Perhaps, maybe they don't. Maybe they think, who is this woman talking so early on in her career? But it, it is really hard to convey how you always feel like you're learning and you always feel like you're just starting out. I think as well, because there aren't that many concrete 
paths, like you said, and because I, I juggle academic work and translation work, it's it's very difficult. But that's that's been the way that I've found um opportunities. I, I've been able to take on translation opportunities because of my translation work. So but obviously that's not an option for everybody and it's not what everybody would want to do. So I think one piece of advice that I would give and that is based on something a good friend of mine said and gave at a workshop for early career researchers actually. And the title of the talk he was asked to give was Finding Success as an Early Career Researcher. But he completely flipped this workshop on its head and simply asked us, what does success mean to us? This was such an important moment for me because we started to kind of pull that apart and think about the kind of things that we envisaged for ourselves. What did we value? And I think that's really important for translators too like the, it's not it's not a set path there's no kind of real framework for it so we really have to think what are we happy with like what does success mean to us if if success to you means a regular secure wage then don't bank on doing literary translation full time it's really important to be realistic about that and to say that um, very few people make their living from literary translation alone and it often forms part of a wider portfolio and thinking about your work as a portfolio can be a really useful way to put it I think to help others understand um but yeah thinking about what success means to you like does it does it mean translating what Ever you like and just doing what you enjoy and maybe one or two of those pieces will find a home in a journal on a website if that if that is the thing that you value most then you have made it in that sense if you want to publish books if you want to publish material then you might consider whether or not you would have as much choice in deciding who those authors are or how much you were always connected to the text I don't know so yeah I think I would simply flip that question and just say like what does success mean to you and and can you make translation a part of your life that sounds like excellent advice <laughs> thank you thank you very much for that olivia i've really enjoyed talking to you it was a really lovely conversation and thanks for being so generous with your with your time of course but also with advice and with being open and sharing about your experience as well Thanks for listening and thanks to Rebecca, Olivia and Flo for joining us. If you have questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you'll find out more details about the book club and all of our other programmes by heading over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do rate, review and subscribe or follow the podcast because it helps other people to find it and it also means you won't miss an episode. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation today by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and hitting the Support Us button in the top right-hand corner. Thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.